This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. This podcast is Shareable. I'm your host, Jeff Gibbard, commonly known as the world's most handsome strategist and professional speaker. I'm also a superhero. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single Shareable episode. And that's it. That's the intro. Short and sweet. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, my guest is Joe Sanok. He is the author of a new book, Thursday is the New Friday, with the tagline that I freaking love and I can't wait to get into, how to work fewer hours, make more money, and spend time doing what you want. Uh, Just let that hit your eardrums and enjoy it. In this book, Joe empowers readers with practical evidence-based methodology, I'm reading this part, to create their own work schedule and dedicate more of their precious personal time to pursuing their hobbies and spending time with their family and friends. Another part of this that really resonates with me because, Joe, I do a lot of that too in my work. So welcome to the show, Joe. Jeff, thank you so much for having me on the show. Dude, it's really cool to have other podcasters on the show. Um, for those that don't know, uh, tell them the name of your podcast. It's the Practice of the Practice, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I have Practice of the Practice podcast. Started that in 2012, primarily to help counselors and therapists, psychologists with the business of private practice. I had this private practice that I sold in 2019, and we learned nothing about business in grad school. But yeah, we have all these great clinical skills, but a lot of these folks have PhDs and they can't attract clients. They don't know anything about marketing or blogging or business. So I just was co-learning and just talking about it. And then over time, as I interviewed people, I realized I know a lot of stuff and started consulting and had a whole business arm. That's amazing. Uh, So I actually just found out like three days ago that my therapist is actually going to private practice. Uh, So it's very appropriate that we're talking. I'm going to try and pick your brain for all the the goodies. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I actually, uh, I'm on the board. Uh, I'm actually the chair of the marketing committee uh, for a nonprofit that uh, helps people get access to mental health services um, called Council for Relationships here in Philadelphia. And it's a really old nonprofit, works in systems therapy. It's really amazing. I really love it. And I always love people talking to people who are in the world of mental health and in the world of helping people who work in mental health be more successful, reach more people, because I think everybody needs a therapist, at least one. Um, I, I pride myself on having two. I have mine and then I have ours. And I'm really, uh, I think it's really awesome that you do this work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's cool to be in kind of the macro perspective where, you know, we're helping thousands of therapists with their private practices. So we see trends really quickly. So at the very beginning of COVID um, our membership community right away was like, we need help around online counseling. And so a friend of mine has the online counseling podcast. We helped them launch onlinecounseling.com, which just, it's like a directory of online counselors and brought them in right away and did all these trainings And our community just shifted so quickly in March of 2020 that they, the 2020 was their best year ever for a lot of them because they were helping people through a way that, you know, they could keep helping them during the pandemic. And so it's just cool to see these trends and have connections with all these different companies that support mental health and say, Hey, here's what we're hearing that needs to shift. Uh, can you build that? And then right away therapy, you know, it's like creates like a, you know, teletherapy within their system, or it, it's so fun to just be at that macro perspective um, of what's shifting in society. Yeah, man. I, I'll tell you. So if any of my CFR people are listening, um, definitely go and check out Joe's podcast. And after we get done with this, I want to uh, want to pick your brain and see if you have any episodes you can recommend for that, because that's something that was really a big conversation in the nonprofit that I work with, because we had to shift so quickly to it. And there's so many considerations about it. As someone who's myself shifted from in-person to online and, and has a tremendous 
difficulty with vulnerability in general, the idea of having that safe space as an actual space versus having to set that up at home, there's like so many considerations with that. So I just appreciate that there's someone out there like you who's who's looking at those sorts of things and it's encouraging uh, encouraging people to have solves for that. Interestingly enough, I um, one of the things that I do, um, one of my businesses is called the Superhero Institute and it's essentially kind of what you're doing, except it's for coaches. So I've coached and consulted for a long time and taking everything I learned there and showing people how to build a successful coaching and consulting practice. And same sort of thing, I find there's a lot of things that I've learned. I'm curious, you've written this book and I wanna make sure that we get to talk about that because it's one of the things that attracted me to having you on in the first place. But um, let's start with kind of your pivot from working in uh, therapy and working as a counselor and then moving to helping companies uh, or or, or, uh, therapists run their own private practice. Um, was there some sort of like an aha moment that you had that you were like, I've been doing this for, was it 15, 20 years that you were doing it? And you just basically were like, I just discovered this thing and it changed my life. And I tell other therapists about it. And now I need to like go spread the gospel, so to speak. Like what, what was your kind of aha moment that made you decide to get out of the, the therapy or, or was it like, just tired of talking to people and about their problems. No, you know, I think it was kind of slow moving. Uh, I'm someone that doesn't do five-year plans. I'm actually really against them because I think that you often play too small when you think in like five years ahead of now. Because when I look back five years, it's it's like I never would have guessed I'd be where I'm at now. But I usually th- say like, what's the next reasonable thing that's going to help me expand? And so, you know, back in 2012, I was working at a community college and I was a college counselor. It was an amazing job. I had lots of autonomy. My boss was super supportive. Um, so it wasn't this full-time job that I dreaded going to. If anything, it was a really easy job compared to some of the mental health jobs I had had. But at that time, I also had a counseling private practice to pay off student loan debt and kept hiring new clinicians and had eventually five clinicians there while it was my side gig. Um, and then also had the podcast. So it was a very busy schedule. Uh, So my daughter was born in 2011 and she was diagnosed with a heart issue. And um, right before her first birthday, she had open heart surgery. And so, I mean, just going through having a child in the hospital and all that and seeing her puffed up little face after surgery and, you know, went through all of it. Her heart is fine now. She's healthy. She has no restrictions. Um, But about a month and a half after uh, she had had heart surgery, they gave it all clear. Everything went how it's supposed to. The follow-up checkups went well. But then two weeks after that, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And it was just like, oh my gosh, like we were just in the hospital. So then I did radioactive iodine treatment and all these different things. It was the same year that my grandma died and my friend's wife had breast cancer. And it was just one of those years where it's like, how much more can a guy take? Um, And I started to really evaluate what was I doing with the private practice? What was I doing with practice of the practice? What was I doing with the community college? And again, it wasn't that I needed to leave or wanted to leave that 40 hour a week job, but it it was that I didn't have the autonomy to grow my income, to grow my time. I was locked into that 40 hours. That's what I was contracted for. And so when my next child was born in late 2014, I took the full family medical leave act um, and spread that out. uh, So that was working part-time for about four or five months. And that was, that gave me the opportunity to really kind of dip my toes into just private practice and just practice the practice and see if I liked it. And every single month was better financially than the month before. So in April of 2015, I ended up leaving that full-time job. And really from, from 2015 until I sold the practice in 2019, I really enjoyed the counseling work, but I kept watching this kind of shift towards every year I'd take on more consulting clients. Then I started a mastermind group. Then I started a membership community and it, every hour was worth more and more over on the practice of the practice category. 
And my counseling side, I mean, you just can't charge someone for counseling, you know, 1500 bucks an hour. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I guess some people probably can, Esther Perel or, you know, Brene Brown probably could. Yeah. Um, but, but it just, it was so much more scalable when I was going international in teaching therapists than doing one-on-one -on -one counseling. And I was having more fun with it. Um, I really was just ready for that shift to help people level up beyond what they thought, to have more freedom, to build their practice, all these things that I had done. Um, and so I just really kept noticing my natural energy and saying, it's really interesting what's happening. This thing that I thought I would be forever, a psychologist, a counselor, um, I'm leaving that identity behind. And eventually in 2019, even signed a non-compete that I wouldn't start counseling again, um, which is great. It forced me to just fully exit that field and jump full tilt into the, the consulting and, and the work that I do with practice to practice. So you burn the boats behind you basically. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> wow, man. Um, there's so much there. I mean, it, throughout that whole thing, one, what a year that you made it through the resilience to like, keep to, to get back up from that. And then the perseverance to keep pushing through all of those different things. Just wow, man, kudos on that. Um, and I, and I, I just, everybody has, you know, the whole thing about like, um, everybody's struggles feel like the same weight to them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't compare them mine to yours, but I, I know times in my life where I felt like, oh man, this is like too much. Is there any more? And I think everybody listening could probably relate to having a stretch of time like that, but yours really was like, wow. Um, okay. So where to even dive in on this? Let, let's start with the whole, um, you leave the, the private practice, you, you, uh, you get into doing the podcast and, and going around. And I get the idea of the sort of like the marginal increase for your time, right? Like when I go give a speaking engagement that crushes anything I do with consulting right now, even though I charge a, a pretty nice rate for my consulting and coaching, it's nothing compared to like getting on stage for an hour or two hours. Um, there's just a much better marginal return there. Is that what got you thinking about this idea of working less hours that you started to notice that pattern of moving? You know, you mentioned your time kept getting increasingly more valuable. Is that sort of what triggered this idea of Thursday is the new Friday? Or was it, did you read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week and you were like, four hours is not nearly enough, bro. It's, it's more like four <laughs> days. Like, how did, how did you get to where you are here? Cause I I'm seeing the, the linear, not the linear, but like the, the progression from where you started to here. But yeah. So I, I did read uh, the four hour work week. And I think that, and it's funny how many people are comparing it to one another. Even Pat Flynn recently endorsed my book and called it the new four hour work week, which Pat Flynn is like an idol of mine. And so for yeah. him to say that was like, holy crap. It's a hell of an um, endorsement. Oh my gosh, for sure. Um, but I think that, so the four hour work week to me was awesome for entrepreneurs, but isn't realistic for an entire society. So I would say that my book is definitely saying, let's reshape society. We can dig into some of the history if we want to around just the reshaping of society beyond what the industrialists gave us. Um, but personally, um, it was when I left that community college job and realized, okay, my entire schedule now is mine again. Um, and it was a return home in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, back my freshman year of college, when I was sitting down with the orientation leaders and we're making our schedules, they said, you can do whatever schedule you want. And I was like, wait, so I could take Fridays off? And they're like, yeah, do, do whatever you want. Just make sure you take the right classes. And so throughout all of college, I had three-day weekends, except for one semester when a mandatory psych class was only offered Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so really it was a return home. My first job after grad school, I negotiated a four-day work week to have a three-day weekend, you know, as a 25-year-old. And I just thought this was normal. I thought it was that normal that people would say, well, why do I have to do things this way? Um, that everyone kind of had this punk 
rock, like I'm going to do it my way. But I realized that's not always the case. So that, that is not the- normal. Just so we're no. like most, cause I work a four day work week. Um, I take Fridays off to watch my daughter and it is, I tell people about that and they're like, yeah, must be nice because it's, it's totally people really do not get that. Like it can happen. I yeah. definitely think it can't happen for everyone, but there's definitely a, uh, and, and I think to your point, and this is actually something I really want to get into now that you mention it is about the reshaping of society. Um, I like yeah. that that's kind of part of what drove this. Absolutely. So when I left the college, I, that first summer said, okay, I want to do an experiment where I just work four days. And so I, I did it as a summer experiment just to look at it. I'm like, things aren't going to fall apart enough that it's going to like sink the ship of the family. Uh, and if it is sinking, then, you know, I can always go back to five days a week. And, and so that whole summer I had three day weekends and in September looked at the numbers and every single month had been the best month to that point. So Jan- June was the single best financial month I had had up to that point. July was better than June. August was better than July. So I was like, holy cow, this thing's working. I'm going to keep doing this. And so I kept doing time experiments to see how little I could work and how much I could do, how much I could outsource. So this was how I lived from basically 2014 when I left that, or 2015 when I left that full-time job uh, all the way up till now. And so discovering that that actually was a superpower for myself uh, took some time because I was working with a writing coach around getting a proposal for a book. Initially, I thought I was going to talk about big ideas, but she kind of knew what the industry was looking for. And every single Thursday, Nancy and I would talk and it just felt like, what, what are we doing here? Like, you're just having me talk. And she would just say, well, how would you handle this with a client? How would you handle this? What advice would you give here? And she was really pulling out of me. What are the unique things that I have created for my clients instead of just regurgitating what someone else has taught? And then when we kind of brought it together, it was really, you know, you're teaching people to work less and make more. uh, And that the four day work week really is kind of at the core of that first step to push people into that. What's the villain that people have to overcome to do this? Because that sounds heroic and lovely and I'm all about it. And I've structured my life that way, but people have asked me how I did it. And what I typically will say is um, I just decided to do it. And I have the luxury of having a little bit of money in the bank that allows me to have that freedom. So my approach is not what your approach is. Like your approach clearly has a little bit more teeth to it and a structure and a framework. And I want to know, how you do that, but starting with what's the villain that you have to overcome to do that? Because everything is saying you can't do this. Like yeah. everywhere tells you that you not only have to work five days a week, you probably should be working more than nine to five. You should probably work enough. You probably should do a little bit on the weekends. Don't turn off your phone. Like you want to climb the ranks. You got to put in extra time. You're bucking the system. Why? How? What's the villain that's over being all this? Yeah, I love this question about the villain because, um, like, to know the backstory of society and how we got here to me is essential for us to move into this next phase. So to know the villain that we're dealing with now, we have to know the villain that was before it. So just like any movie, it's like, you think that's the villain. There's actually another villain that's behind it. That's even worse. So let's go back about 4,000 years to the Babylonians. So the Babylonians had this belief that there is only seven major celestial things in the universe. So there was the sun, the moon, the earth, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. So the brightest seven things that they could see. So they had seven day weeks because of that. They literally made up the seven day week. The Romans had a 10 day week. The Egyptians had an eight day week. Hold on, hold on. You have to stop there. You can't be dropping that and just, is that the first seven day week thing was that? And it was based on that? 
as far as we can see, the first major culture of a seven day week was the Babylonians, which actually, if you deconstruct where the Torah was actually written down, when we see like the Genesis story being yeah. written down, it was written down when the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And, and so it's like, Yo, this is something that's that nuts. we think is so essential. It's a seven day week, but it's completely it's random. I've never even yeah. thought about it, actually, other, right. other than the, the, the Genesis story. Other than right. that, like, I've never really thought of it. Yeah. I mean, you think about in nature, a year makes sense. It's how long it takes the earth to go around the sun. Mm -hmm. A day makes sense. It's how long it spins a seven day week. There's absolutely nothing in nature that says we need to have seven days. Mm -hmm. And so we could just as easily have a five day week and have 73 of those in a year. That actually probably make more sense because it's more divisible. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. so, so if we just start with the Babylonians just made this up. In around 300, the emperor in Rome converted to Christianity and across all of Rome then made the seven-day week the norm. So then again, we just have a powerful person that just makes the seven-day week up. So fast forward to the late 1800s, the average person was working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. So they were just working all the time. So in 1926, Henry Ford does a huge step for the evolution of people, the evolution of work. He wants to sell more cars. And he says, my people who work at Ford are not going to buy a car to get to work faster. There's no way that they're just going to buy a car to get to work faster. But if we give them a weekend where they have something to do outside of work, I'm going to be able to sell to my own people way more. So in 1926, on May day of 1926, where there had been a riot 40 years earlier, asking for the 40 hour work week. He then announces we're doing a 40 hour work week at Ford. And it then starts to sweep the nation. So less than hundred years ago, the industrialists give us this big gift for the time, a step forward for humanity then that now we've outgrown. So to your question of who's the villain, I would say it's the industrialists. They gave us something that was appropriate at the time, but we've outgrown. We don't think of people anymore as machines. We don't say we're just stagnant and we're part of this, this linear machine that just sits there. No, we're organisms that evolve and grow and the businesses that are doing that, that are outgrowing the industrialist mindset, those are the ones that are thriving. So if we go back to that mindset of when people say, must be nice that you have a three-day weekend, you have an industrialist mindset. That person is driven by the industrialists, even though they know that they don't think like the industrialists in any other capacity. So I know there's a lot of, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, there's been a lot of studies recently that show that people are actually just as productive on like a four-day week and some are showing it like, you know, you could even make it stretch to three-day weeks. Like there's all this data that's out there, 40-hour week is outdated and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's, there's definitely uh, data supporting that. And I'm sure that you have some, some neuroscience to, to back what you're saying. Um, if there's all of this evidence and people know that they don't want to work five days a week, they want to have more time with their family, friends, et cetera. Um, so you're saying the industrialist is the villain, but was the villain probably more is the villain because it, it's still being perpetuated. Let's talk about how we potentially go about solving and pressing against that because it feels very much like this is an insurmountable problem. You don't make your schedule. If you work for someone, they do. And if the pervasive they, it's like you need a watershed moment of like a, a Henry Ford, not like I want to idolize that guy, but right. um, but you need someone to say, oh, we're going to do four-day work week now. And then that becomes the norm, hopefully. Like there's some sort of a thing that, that creates that. Like is that what you perceive to be the solution is like we need another one of those or is there something else? It's like, um, sorry, a, a handful, of, you're like getting me thinking about so many different things. You ever see in uh, – um, 
can't remember what movie it was, but it was like there was the six minute abs, and somebody was like, "Well, why not?" <laughs> what about five, five minutes? Yeah, 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 right. So like something about like, Mary, I think. Are we gonna have like Wednesday is the new Friday after yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. All my friends are like, "What's your next?" But Wednesday is the new Thursday is the new Friday. But then about yeah. Tuesdays the Wednesdays. That yeah. No, well, and so I mean, if we think about it, I think we just lived through that watershed moment. History is going to point back to the pandemic and say what was the thing that made people say to themselves, why are we working this way? Why mm -hmm. are we doing things this way? Why do we just care about butts in a chair instead of outcomes when we just for a year were able to figure out how to manage our kids' Zoom calls, our own sourdough bread recipes and work. Uh, there's all these things that we've realized that we can do it differently. And so I'd actually say we, we've lived through this and, and we've been seeing this shift really since the 1980s. I mean, I don't know if you remember TGIF on ABC with Full House and Urkel. Every Friday. I mean, yeah, every Friday. Friday, I like to say, has been having an affair with the weekend for long enough. And why don't we just call it what it is? Because we know that Friday is not the same productivity as we see on Monday. Um, it, it's a day that we have birthday parties. It's a day at work. It's a day we have like baby showers. We might do some cheesy team building activity. We're making weekend plans. Um, it's just not as productive. And so as we start to dig into the neuroscience um, that you're talking about and some of these case studies, uh, we're seeing that more and more large corporations, small corporations, they're finding that the productivity and the creativity is actually higher with a four-day work week or fewer, as you were saying, uh, than with the five-day work week. Um, so we can dig into why that slowing down actually sparks speeding up. If you want to go into that neuroscience. Yeah, let's talk I mean, about it. Go for it. Dig right into it. Yeah. So, I mean, just think intuitively when you have your best ideas. I mean, it's when you're in the shower or when you're on a hike or you're on a long run or maybe you're going for a drive and the music's off. What's common about all of those things? It's that your brain isn't being bombarded. It's not stressed out. It's not maxed out. Um, you know, I tell a story in the book about in 2001, I was in Nepal with my friend Todd. Uh, we were in the Chitwan jungle, which uh, is like this kind of low point where there's like an elephant sanctuary and our, we're going to do this hike through the jungle. And the guide says to me and Todd and these Peace Corps volunteers, so there's like four of us there, uh, if we get chased by a wild rhinoceros, climb a tree. And so this was a moment that I really should have asked a follow-up question or two, but chose not to. Like, what kind of tree should we climb? How do you climb it? Uh, how often does this happen? But I, I didn't ask any follow-up questions. So we go into the jungle, we hike for about an hour, and we come upon a rhino. I have a little point and click camera. My friend has a digital camera, but I don't really trust that it's going to like capture the photos. So I take a picture, do the little zzz, zzz, and then I step forward because I don't know if the picture like was going to just look blurry. I mean, you know how those old cameras used to be. So I take another picture and then I take another step forward and the rhino charges us. So I take off running. I knew that because in high school, I was a sprinter and I was always one of the fastest kids in the class. I knew I was going to outpace for sure the Peace Corps volunteers, but I had at least 100 <laughs> yards on Todd. So I just take off running. Todd's a distance runner. So if this rhino has us for more than 100 yards, like at least I have two more human shields with the Peace Corps volunteers. So we don't hear the rhino behind us. We all come back and our guide is up in a tree and shimmies down and yells at us like, why didn't you run up the tree? So like, why didn't I run up a tree when a rhino is chasing me? Because we go with what we know when, our, when we're under stress, when we're freaking out. I knew I could outrun the Peace Corps volunteers for sure. And probably Todd for just a little bit. I'm not going to attempt to do something new and creative, like climb a tree I've never climbed, especially when a rhino is charging me. And so the same thing happens in our brains when we're stressed out and maxed out in our job. Sure, we get the job done. We run away from the rhino. But do we do what's best? Do we do our most creative work? Does the neuroscience say that, oh, you have these big aha moments when you're freaking out and stressed out? No, no. 
we need to actually back up from the productivity and say, first, we need to slow down. We need to set clear boundaries on our weekends and on our evenings away from work and as teams. And then when we fully optimize our brain, we can do our best, most creative work when we step up and we want to kill it. Mm-hmm. So that made me think of um, the, you know, the disc profile, how they have like the natural and adapted. So the adaptive is like, here's how you respond under stress. And as you were saying that, my thought was, yes, but you did respond with what you were good at and you did get away from the rhino. So in a certain, uh, in a certain context, if everybody is under stress and you're turning towards the thing that you're best at, that, that probably works to your advantage versus trying something new. So I guess what you're suggesting is, is that it's important. Yes. If you don't have any alternative, you, you go with what's what, what works, but you want to take that time and step away from the stressful situation to kind of learn a new way of thinking about a new skill. And then that way you're ready when it's time and you're back under stress. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're stressed, we're not going to think of new things to do. Uh, And so you may be best at it, but most companies, most entrepreneurs, most innovators want to create new things that can improve the market, improve the world, solve a new pain. Um, But that that ability to be creative and curious isn't going to happen when we're stressed. So if we back up and say, so how do we first optimize the brain? Well, we need to know internally what we're dealing with. So, so often we'll get some self-help productivity book and it's prescriptive, but we haven't even done the inner work yet to say like, who am I in a unique way? What are my internal inclinations? And then before we even jump into those productivity books, we don't even slow down. And so the market typically is we've got prescriptive productivity books on one side, or we have these woo-woo Zen meditation, make a like vision board, manifest it to the universe, but don't do any work on the other side. And they're, they seem like they're on two separate ends of the spectrum, but they're actually describing the same unique brain that we need to have the slowdown to optimize the ability to kill it. And when you find that flow, that's where your brain is getting prepped over the weekend when you're stepping back or in the evenings, however you structure it. So that actually, when you go do that work, you can get more done in a shorter period of time. When you say like that, it sounds so obvious. My business coach said to me, slow down so you can move fast at one point, because I think very fast and move very fast. He said, your best thing is you can slow down, plan it out. And that way you're kind of set for the straightaway to a certain extent. So what you're saying makes perfect sense. Works for me, I know. And I know that when I work with clients, a lot of times you get alignment at the beginning, you can move more quickly later on. So it all makes perfect sense. And I'd imagine if your goal as a company is to get more creative work, more engaged workforce, happier, healthier people who show up to work more and don't hate their lives or their bosses, it would seem like this is the smart move, the obvious choice, move to a four-day work week, have a more creative workforce, make greater margins, through more creative work and a more engaged workforce. Great. All makes sense. Why is it still not happening in your opinion? I think that people will more frequently go with what they know, even if there's something better for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- whether you think about relationships, job jumps, Chasing um, trying new skills. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like people will go with, with what they know. Um, we are scared deep down of change. And so I think that a lot of companies 
don't want to take that gamble. And that's where you know those prescriptive books that say only do it this way often don't work. It, it works in the short term, but it doesn't teach people how to think. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do is to say, okay, let's look at some experiments. Let's look at some of those things that top performers do. So we know that there's three things that top performers do internally and naturally before they get to slowing down. What can we learn from that? And how can we do some experiments around that to enhance those skills internally? Then how do we do specific things around slowing down that we're in an ongoing basis learning how we slow down differently, how we pay attention to that differently? And then how do we kill it in a new way where we honor our unique sprint type and the way that we're, we're going to best get things done. So each one of those phases then actually helps us learn in an agile way, instead of just saying, here's this industrialist model of the five steps in my book that are going to make you do this. No, instead it's, here's a menu and I'm going to teach you how in each different menu area, you can do the work to say, here's how I optimize within this specific domain. What are the three things that uh, top performers do? Yeah. So you mentioned um, that. I want to know yeah. about that. Yeah. So they're called internal inclinations. And, and so the internal inclinations, these are things that top performers are often born with. Um, and this isn't a pass fail, like, oh, shoot, I don't have one of them. I suck. No, it, it's that here, okay, this is an area that needs developing. And here's some tools on how to develop that. And so um, the first one is curiosity. The second one is an outsider perspective. And the third one is an ability to move on it. So let's look at like each of those three. So curiosity. Uh, so when I was writing the chapter on curiosity, I just started brainstorming on the whiteboard, like what comes to mind? And right away, curiosity killed the cat came to mind. And I'm like, well, how did that even like come to be? In the early 1900s, the front page of the Washington Post said curiosity killed the cat. Uh, because there was this cat that got stuck in a chimney. There's really slow news apparently that week. And so for five days, the whole nation was wondering if this cat was going to get out and it ends up dying. It says curiosity killed the cat. What a terrible thing for us to teach kids and adults. Like if you're curious, you're going to die. It's ridiculous. And, and so we think about even my daughters. So I have a six and 10 year old daughters. Um, the other day they were outside playing with my nieces. Uh, my nieces are um, three and five. And so there are all these little girls outside and they find a dead mouse. And how do kids react when they see something they haven't seen before? They ask a billion questions. So how did this mouse die? What's going to happen to this mouse? Do you think an owl is going to eat this mouse? Should we bury this mouse? Should we put this mouse in the woods? Like, so they're, they're naturally curious. Whereas adults, oftentimes we want to wait for these eureka moments, but really what we should be doing is we should be saying, well, that's interesting. Why did that happen? And so say you're running a Facebook ads campaign for, for one of your programs, and it's just like a total flop. So if that happens, a lot of people with this pass fail mentality are going to be like, man, I'm so terrible. This didn't work. I didn't get the outcomes I want, but curious people will dig in and say, I'm getting some interesting data here. So the second one is an outsider perspective. And so statistically, we know that outsiders have a better and stronger influence than people that are on the inside. And so that can be people coming from a different country that have different skill sets, people from a different industry. Even if you think about if you're ever hired in a new job, you're like, that's weird. Why do they do it that way? Like, that seems so unproductive. You know, like every new person like has that point of view. Uh, and there's a ton of research that if we want to dig into that, um, that we can talk about why that is. Uh, and then the third one is um, the ability to move on it. Uh, there, there's a spectrum of accuracy on one side and speed on the other. And so there's times that we want things to be accurate. You know, if I go to the hospital, if I go under the knife and have surgery, I want my doctor, I want her to do as accurate of a job as she can do. She can take as long as she needs to work on me to do a, a good surgery. 
But for most of the entrepreneurial world and most of the world of, of coaching or any of those sorts of things, speed is going to trump accuracy every time. Because instead of being paralyzed by perfection, you then are getting things done and get that feedback loop in there. And usually lives are not on the line at that point. You definitely don't right. want your doctor to be like, you know what? We've never tried it this way before, but let's give it a shot. <laughs> this is my fastest surgery ever. New record. <laughs> Sweet. What's all that red stuff on the ground? That's not oh, wh- for us. Where are the scissors? Oh, no. Uh-oh. We got to cut it back open. Get those back. Okay, cool. Got it. There's something else that you said at the end of um, the last thing where you're talking about the high performers. Um, that I forgot what I was going to ask you, but... Um, uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was, uh, sprint types, something that you mentioned, um, in some of your materials. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, what that means? Yeah. So let's, let's think about how the typical person approaches, you know, sprinting or time blocking. So you'll read a typical book or a, you know, blog post, or maybe you hear a podcast and someone says, you need to start batching things. You need to start sprinting. And then you try I it. say that all the time. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of people will hear that they won't know how to do it. And even if they do, they're like, ah, I don't know if that works for me or not, but actually similar to personality types, there's sprint types. Uh, and so there's the way that we sprint and then the when of when we sprint. So let's look at the way that we sprint. So the first type are time block sprinters. So these are sprinters that are going to sprint and do one particular task for a period of time. So for example, every Thursday, I worked on Thursday is the new Friday. That's when I wrote. That's all I did every single Thursday. So one particular task, whereas task switch sprinters are ones that they need the variety. And so they know I have these five or six things I need to do, but they want to change every 20 minutes or half hour to do something different. There's a lot of people that just don't have the attention to batch and do one thing for a whole day or for a whole morning. And so understanding just kind of how we're doing this um, can help the brain align with, with the actual tasks that you're doing. The second part of this is when we do it. And so when we're looking at the automated sprinter, the automated sprinter is someone that does it every single week at the same time. So that's what I did with Thursday is the new Friday is every Thursday I'm writing this book. It's just on repeat. My assistant never books anything on a Thursday because it's just blocked out Joe writing. So it's on repeat every week. And so, uh, you know, there might be that you're going to work on your podcast or do podcast guests for a specific time. It just repeats. But then the other type of sprinter around the, the when we're going to do it is going to be the intensive sprinter. So an intensive sprinter is someone that needs to go away. They need to have a retreat for three days and they go to an Airbnb and they just go just bust it out. Uh, and so I always like to cite the guy that I talk about in the book, Dr. Jeremy Sharp. He has the Testing Psychologist podcast. He has a psychology clinic in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, and this podcast is awesome. It's super niche with psychologists that are doing testing. Uh, but he goes away a couple times a year. He rents an Airbnb uh, and he has a number of criteria that he has as part of that. It needs to have some sort of outdoor space. It needs to be walking distance from a vegan restaurant because he doesn't want to spend time parking and driving all around a new town. Um, he wants to be able to look at the menu, know the things that he orders, go get it and then go back to work. Um, and then he brings a bunch of work with him. So he's a task switch sprinter while he's doing his intensive. And so when we start to align our sprint type with kind of who we are naturally, we get more done and we don't feel like a failure because we're actually aligning our sprint type with how we're doing our sprints. Damn. 
we've covered so much in this already. And I, I realized that I haven't asked you one of like the most important questions. And I guess we're just going to save it for the end here, but like we we've covered so much, we've covered some of the neuroscience behind it. We've covered the origin of the seven day week and the 40 hour work week and, and what might be coming next. Uh, we've talked about kind of like flow and different types of uh, sprint states and things like that. So we, we've covered a lot of different stuff, but we haven't talked about how we move from our current state to a four day work week. So to, to kind of like close out the show, let's, let's get to the punchline of the whole thing. You're advocating for a four day work week. How are we going to get there? What, what are somebody listening right now is thinking, I want to do that. Maybe they're employed, maybe they're self-employed. I'd imagine those might be two different cases, but kind of what's the framework that you're suggesting people think about? Um, Obviously don't give away everything in the book. I strongly suggest people go and buy the book, obviously, but whatever you feel like giving away, what's the, what's the move here? How do we get to it outside of what I I did? Just say that I'm doing it. No, I think especially people that are employed by somebody else, that's where I get the biggest question of, okay, I want to do this. How do I do it? So I'll start with that. There are some employers that are so industrialist in their mindset that you'll have to make a choice of whether or not you stay there. Uh, I don't think that every single employer in the world is going to buy into this in the same way that not everyone bought in in 1926. It took a while. Uh, And and so just starting with, okay, where you work might not be a fit for you long-term. Okay. Now say that at least your immediate supervisor seems somewhat open to the idea. And so I would recommend getting a small team of six to eight people. So this is going to be a team maybe within a department. You all maybe have similar roles and similar types of things that you're judged on. Um, And then you're each reading through the book. Uh, What you're going to first do is talk to your supervisor and say, you know, we want to do an experiment for two or three months where we work four days a week instead of five days a week. Uh, we want to put together our KPIs, our key performance indicators of how you judge us. We want to work with you and give you, you know, weekly or every other week updates. Uh, and here's kind of what the plan is going to be. The benefit to you is that you get to look like an innovative supervisor. And you know, if, if we end up discovering something, your team was the one that discovered this. And so if you can get some, at least buy-in over a couple months from your supervisor to say, let's at least give this a whirl for two or three months. We don't want to have this be a two-week thing or a one-month thing because there's so many variables that can happen just in a month where, you know, something can happen and then it makes your team look really bad and they blame it on the four-day work week when in reality, it was just maybe a natural flow within the business. All right. So you get some buy-in. Then the next step is as a team to say, what are the KPIs for our team of how we're going to judge this to be a success or not? You only want two or three. And so it may be customer service. It may be customer acquisition, maybe money in, money out. Uh, You want it to be something that's very easy to track. And then the next step that most people actually miss is what are the boundaries that we're going to have outside of work that will help us genuinely rest so that when we come back, we can go full tilt for four days. And so this might be when our workday ends, like none of us are going to be emailing or texting each other at all after this time. Uh, that on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, none of us are going to be emailing or even checking our email. Or maybe we have to rotate one person that has to do that because you know, we need someone 24-7, depending on what type of department you have. So if you have like an IT department that oversees a whole company and needs to make sure the website's not down, Sure, maybe you need to have someone that rotates through. So you're planning out to create a culture with that group to be able to genuinely step back. And then to report out on Monday, what were the fun things that happened over the weekend? Um, So, man, I started taking a watercolor class. My family and I, we went to the beach. And wow, I feel so rejuvenated, just ready to sprint here this week and just kill it with you guys. 
Like that's what you want to do is to create this mini culture of, of six to eight people. Because what happens sometimes is one person starts emailing and then everyone else thinks they're going to look bad if they don't respond. And then they're texting. And the next thing you know, you're back to that old way. And that's, that's not a good experiment. That's not the model. So then every week you're then reporting out to that supervisor uh, more frequently than what the supervisor expects. So maybe you say, hey, once a week or every other week, we're going to report to you. Maybe you do it once a week instead to just give more data than they expect. So here's the two or three areas that we set our KPIs. Here's our numbers, especially if it's down. You want to say our plan for this coming week is to do this to try to bring this number back up. And then at the very end of the experiment, sitting down as a team with the supervisor saying, here's all the data. Uh, here's what we saw with the fluctuations throughout each week. Here's macro what happened with us working this much. And here are kind of just the, uh, the analytical perspective of what it did to us personally. It, it, we're happier as a team. We're more connected as a team. We came up with these innovations. We can't track these things as well as maybe some of the data, but here's just like the, the macro perspective of what it did for us for wanting to stay with the company. And so then you're making the case for maybe we should do another experiment for three months. Uh, so when you go through that type of process, you're then learning as you go, you're finding out the, the pitfalls. So then imagine four other teams wanted to jump on board. Your team then becomes the leaders of that. And that makes that supervisor look great. And then you're slowly making Thursday, the new Friday company-wide and culture-wide. I love it. That's very practical. It makes perfect sense that that would, uh, makes perfect sense that in certain types of environments, that could be a really effective way of going about doing it. For the, uh, for the entrepreneurs that are listening who don't need anybody's buy-in, how do you get them to just buy in that they should give it a shot? Same sort of thing. Give it a shot. Experiment for three months. I, I would say that entrepreneurs have a little different bend to them. Uh, you know, people like you and I that have podcasts and programs, we're not doing work that we hate because if we did, we could just eliminate it, you know? Yeah. And so the problem is actually we enjoy our work too much. And we oftentimes probably feel validated through our work, maybe more than we naturally should. And so for us, it's really turning off that work brain uh, because we probably have ideas all the time of what we, what we could do. We're listening to podcasts while we mow the lawn on the weekend and eBooks and audiobooks, and we're consuming all that. For Don't us, the it. challenge is setting very clear boundaries around when work is done and when it's not. And I like to call them soft boundaries and hard boundaries. So a hard boundary would be, you know, on a Friday, I'm never going to work with a consulting client that only wants to meet on Fridays. So like, that's just not something I'm going to do. I wrote a book about not working on Friday. So if someone's like, I can only meet on Friday, I'll pay you all this money. I'll say, I'm sorry, I'm not your person. Like that's a hard boundary that I will never break. But then there's soft boundaries. If, if something comes up within the company, that's a complete fire. That's unexpected. My director of details sends me a text and says, the website's on fire. I need your help. Like, I'm going to work on that. No, we'll analyze what happened on Monday or Tuesday and say, okay, what needs to change so that fire doesn't happen again? But th that's a soft boundary where I'm going to try to not work at all on a Friday, but there's going to be some wiggle room there. The other thing is to make sure that you have really clear bookends as to when you're starting your day and ending your day. So with my kids, you know, I'm a single dad. Um, I give my daughters a hug at the beginning of the day and I say, daddy's going to work now. And then they might go to my sister's house or they might be playing with friends and we've figured out their schedule. And they know that when I say daddy's going to work and this door shuts, they don't come in. Unless I open the door, they don't come in. Through the whole pandemic, I was never interrupted when I was working. And then at the end of my day, or if it's like lunchtime, I'll go give a hug. I'll be like, daddy's home from work. So they know, okay, daddy is off of work. He's not going to be jumping onto email. He's not going to be thinking about all these things or listening to podcasts. He's going to end up with glitter in his hair because he has two daughters, you know? So, so then having those bookends makes it very clear to the people in your life when you're on and when you're off. 
But what also what entrepreneurs need to do is have a very clear way that they capture those ideas. Because sometimes you do have good ideas at really random times and you want to be able to jump into that idea when it's appropriate. And so that could be a note on your phone. It could be an audio memo. It could be a Trello board to just say, here's my idea. You want to be able to offload it from your brain. Otherwise your brain's going to just keep thinking about it when maybe you're stand up paddleboarding with your kids. And so you want to be able to find some tools and tips to genuinely slow down when you're slowing down, but then you can jump back into that flow state when you're ready to work. I dig it. I'm going to ask you one more question before I let you go. And then, and then we're going to wrap, but um, I'd imagine that the aggregate of all of the teams, sort of like you said, starting with the one team and then multiple teams, you change the company. One model for changing the way that our society functions about work is that that happens on a grand enough scale, wide enough across. That's the sort of bottom-up approach. Do you have any thoughts on kind of a top-down approach or any sort of hope that we can make grand systemic sweeping change at any level, or do you think that this has got to be a grassroots kind of movement from entrepreneurs and businesses who are courageous enough to take the action? I think it's going to be both. I mean, 1926, it was a person in power that switched to the 40 hour work week, but 40 years earlier, it was the Haymarket protests in Chicago that really started things up. So that took 40 years to really go from the people's movement to some people in power doing it. Uh, we're already seeing major powerful people, organizations, and countries doing this. The New Zealand study of 2,500 people that had the four-day work week where we saw happiness, productivity, health outcomes all go up, uh, working four days a week. We see that Portugal, Spain, New Zealand are all testing out four-day work weeks. In 2022, Kickstarter is going to be moving to a four-day work week. Um, so we're seeing these major corporations, Microsoft Japan, did a four-day work week. Um, so in Japan, which that's, that's unheard of, yeah. right? And, and so um, we're seeing that this is taking off. Um, Nissan Infinity Canada um, hired me to come do a keynote and they did a bulk book buy for all of their Canadian staff. And so we're seeing that companies post-pandemic are realizing the average person is saying, F this, like I can't go back to the office and just have things like they were. Um, and so they're looking for blueprints. They're looking for ideas. They're looking for conversations. They may still go back to the industrialist model, but they're more open than they've ever been. And I think our generation having lived through this pandemic is the one that can say, no, we are not going to go back. We are digging our heels in and it's going to be better for society. So I think it's going to be that grassroots, but it's also going to be pulling in those larger corporations and saying, we can reinvent how society is around what our work week is. The Babylonians did it. You know, the emperor of Rome did it. Henry Ford did it. Like we can join in that lineage to say, what's the next reasonable step for society. And right now that's the four day work week. I dig it, man. I dig it. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking about the book, talking about all of this different stuff. I learned a crap ton from this episode, which is awesome. Um, I love learning things from uh, from my guests and such. So thank you for coming on. I want to give you a, a chance in the show just to promote the hell out of yourself shamelessly and without any care in the world. Tell people where they can go and learn about you, connect with you, listen to your podcast, buy your book, hire you, whatever it is that they'd like to do. The show is yours. Yeah. You know, the biggest thing is, is to buy the book, uh, whether that's on Amazon or your local bookstore, uh, wherever you get your books, uh, you can pre-order that. It drops on October 5th. Uh, and so we've got a ton of books that have already been pre-ordered. Uh, we've got a ton of really big things lined up. Uh, the head of Kickstarter is going to be interviewing me at a live, at least we think it's going to be a live event in New York uh, that week. Um, Bloomberg News is having me on there. Pat Flynn's having me on the show. Uh, we just have a ton that's coming out all around Thursday is the new Friday. Uh, the best 
best website is joesanok.com. That's where I have all my keynote information, information about the books. But most importantly, we have an experiments section, which as you do these experiments, this is not the Joe Sanok method. I'm not your guru. This is us as a collective saying we want to reshape society. We want to learn from each other. And so if you're doing experiments, uh, we want to know about it. We want to have you submit those experiments so that we can publicly say, hey, this company did this. They failed miserably in their eyes and this didn't work for them or this did an amazing thing. Um, we want to track those experiments and also any book clubs that people are having as well, just to make sure that we together can be spreading this message and that it's not just the Joe Sanok message, but it's our message to say, we need to reshape society. We aren't going to live in the way that we've lived. That's really awesome, man. I actually just had, um, I'm publishing a book that's coming out in January, 2022. And I was just talking with uh, the marketing team from my publisher uh, and we were talking today about like the marketing page of my book, like, where do you want people to go and this and that. And I was saying like, I don't really care if anybody follows me on Twitter. I don't care if anybody like, you know, follows me on YouTube or something. What I care about is like, did they try the ideas in the book? Did something good happen? Did something bad happen? You know, what happened? Tell me about it. And I really like that you're doing that and actually gathering those experiments. Are you going to be publishing those live or are you just taking them in and then sifting through them to kind of build a report? Like, how are you? I know no, we'll be putting them up just blog posts that anybody can read. We're not going to have a paywall or anything. Um, the internal inclinations uh, assessment people get access to from the book. Um, there's a promo code to get that to be able to figure out their own internal inclinations. Um, so yeah, we're trying to have as few paywalls and, and things like that. Uh, we just want to stay connected with people and let them know the cool things that people are doing out there. I love it, man. Anybody who's behind trying to change the world for the better, I am thoroughly in support of. So I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate your message. I love working four days a week. I would encourage it to anybody. It is dope to have a Friday off. Um, so keep doing what you're doing, man. Thanks for coming on. Um, and if you're listening and you like this episode, please tell someone about it. Um, that means that, you know, you, you hit the little share button, which I guess would make this podcast shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy Shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you could support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.